Welcome to AM Best Audio. The evolution of insurance asset management is changing quickly due to a volatile market cycle. To date, we're seeing some of the most dramatic shifts in portfolio strategies that we've seen in a very long time. I'm John Weber. Welcome to this AM Best TV special presentation, Insurance Asset Class Update. We'll be hearing from insurance investment professionals who will review investment categories and how insurers' strategies are changing. With us today are Chad Runchy, EY America's insurance financial performance and risk leader, Tim Antonelli, who leads Wellington Management's global insurance portfolio solutions, and Peter Wertola, insurance strategist and portfolio manager for AAM. And Peter, we're going to start with you today. Financial markets have seen a lot of volatility in the last year. Should insurers be changing their investment strategies in response to this market environment, or should they be staying the course? Thanks, John. I think the key to this question is that investors should only change investment strategy if they're doing it for the right reasons. Being reactive, looking backwards, chasing trends that have already played out, these are canonical ways that investors underperform. But on the other hand, you do want to leave room for investment managers to be opportunistic, especially when volatility is picking up like we've been seeing lately. So my recommendations to insurers would be, don't think in terms of my risk assets went down last year, maybe I should sell them now, or tech stocks are having a big year so far in 2023, maybe I need to buy them now. Instead, I'd say focus on two things. First, make sure that your investment strategy, as spelled out in your investment guidelines, has the flexibility to take advantage of opportunities as they emerge, uh, instead of rushing to accommodate them at the moment when you decide you first want to add them. Uh, Ask your investment manager, are there asset types that the guidelines currently do not allow, but that you think might might, uh, become attractive for us and might make sense for us at some point in the near to medium term? Because then at that point, the ball is in our court as investment managers to think strategically and then implement our best ideas for you. Secondly, make sure that uh, you have well-defined risk limits in your guidelines so that even market scenarios like 2020 or 2022 are ones that you can ride out without having to dump assets at the bottom of a trough. Uh, Ideally, you should have a defined overarching tolerance for mark-to-market losses to surplus in any given year especially if you're holding a variety of different risk assets that might have different kinds of correlations in different market scenarios. And I'd say really what both of those points have in common is that you're not reacting to past events. You're really planning for the future. Yeah, I think it's it's a good point, Peter, in terms of not overreacting. Right? I think the, the good thing about insurance, especially the life insurance side, is it is long-term in nature. So, so the quick reactions to what happened last week or last month um, are not not quite as relevant. But the the challenge is really when does something turn into a trend? When does it turn into something that you should take into account as you look forward? Um, and, and everything you mentioned about risk limits and understanding that is is extremely critical in these times because um, things are happening that, that you may not have anticipated and may not have been worked into your stress testing and your plans and the analysis that's been performed. So constantly looking at that, but also not overreacting, remembering, you know, in, insurance is, is a longer term, uh, a longer term game. Chad, are we seeing a shift in non-traditional asset classes? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, we certainly are. And um, it's, it's a shift that started happening before this most recent uh, volatility. Um, as, as I think of it, there's, there's kind of three main drivers. Uh, one is really the, the string of really low interest rates, and, and we'll get into later in this discussion where we're at today. Um, but there were basically 10 years uh, where the 10-year treasury was under 2.5% from you know, 2010 to 2022, so maybe a little over 10 years. Um, and for many life products, interest spread is really one of the key sources of margin. Um, and most project products are subject to that minimum rate. So that really started to drive insurers. It, it, once again, in the first couple of years there, it was unclear how long are we going to be in this low interest rate environment or that they may be going to come back up. Um, but then once you're in that environment for a long time, you start looking for yield and, and start looking into other asset classes. Um, another driver that, that really occurred kind of over that same time frame is the interest of private equity ownership into insurance. Um, and they brought a deep expertise in more non-traditional asset classes and felt very comfortable investing in those and felt comfortable with the risk profile. Um, and that led to increased competition on product pricing. So if traditional insurers with their traditional asset classes are competing against some of the private equity owned insurers with more non-traditional higher yield assets, it creates an imbalance. Um, and then the, the last item that we've seen more recently is, is really the ability to access other jurisdictions that may have a more principles-based approach to capital and reserving where you can see the benefit of some of those non-traditional asset classes and they may not be treated as harshly. So really, if you look at all three of those, we, we really have started to see a shift away from the heavy concentration in you know, investment grade corporate bonds and in a pretty um, pretty safe conservative portfolio into other asset classes. Um, we pulled a, some, some data from um, 11 of the bigger life insurers, and we saw from 2020 to 2021, basically a 20% increase in their allocation to other. <laughs> and the, the the classes they have there are the traditional ones, bonds, real estate, mortgage-backed securities. So so getting into more of the the other um, non-traditional asset classes. And, and I would just add on top of that, I think we've seen this migration from alternative assets being a surplus or return-seeking variety. It's blending into the reserve backing part of insurers' portfolios. So to Chad's point, seeing a lot more in the way of private credit that's now not just a yield-enhancing uh, risk-on type trade. Instead, it's a structural trade that's used right alongside traditional public corporate credit, um, in some cases very meaningfully in the U.S. life industry. And you're seeing that exposure really you know, move from the surplus side to the, to the reserve backing side. Tim, something that a lot of people would love to know, how do you avoid risk in this market cycle? Yeah. So I think, John, a better way to say it would be, you know, how do you manage risk in this market cycle? Right. And so we've been seeing, you know, with the recent banking crisis that even if you're sitting on 100 percent invested in cash, uh, number one, it would probably be difficult to um, retain your job as a, a CIO. Number two, it doesn't mean that it's an ultimate risk free asset. So you can still have risks even in uh, seemingly benign asset classes. So what we've been helping our clients think through is really a multi-prong approach to managing their market risk or assessing their market risk. And I think the first block and tackling step is reviewing your issuer sector and collateral concentration for all of your assets. See where you're having concentration that could be exposed to different shocks in the market and really understand that exposure, not only a current assessment of how you're positioned today, 
but also make sure that your investment management agreements and your um, your guidelines take into account these different levels of concentration across asset classes and within asset classes. The next thing is really putting a premium on downside protection. And so, you know, you maybe consider asset classes where you're participating in an upside market potential that's not necessarily the full extent of a bull market, but the trade-off is in a drawdown, you're participating less. And so we help a lot of clients think about upside downside capture as it relates to creating either multi-strategy solutions or multi-asset solutions. And just another example, which we've seen, you know, come in focus over the last year or so is an asset class like convertible bonds, which had long been forgotten, where you're getting to participate in the growth equity market upside, but again, with the downside protection of a bond floor. Um, I think Chad mentioned earlier, you know, the long-term uh, nature of insurance investing, I actually think that allows you to be a provider of market liquidity in times of crisis. And so instead of avoiding risk at that point, when valuations get depressed to a certain level, it could be an attractive time to add risk when the market overreacts to news. And so insurers are uniquely positioned to act there. And then the last thing I'd say, because we're starting to see so much divergence in the market across asset classes, across regions, across market cap, et cetera, really focus on cross-asset diversification benefits in your hedging program. And whether, again, that's a uh, an organic hedge with something like a convertible bond or a targeted hedging program to limit your downside capture or your market risk, I think you should be focusing more on how to structure that type of program and market volatility like we have today. Thanks, Tim. When we return, we'll be examining, among other things, liquidity risk in this market cycle, as well as how insurers are dealing with a high interest rate environment. I'm John Weber, and this is AM Best TV. Struggling with today's challenging investment environment? New England Asset Management tailors their services to the insurance industry's unique needs. Learn more by visiting neamgroup.com. That's N-E-A-M Group. We're back and we're speaking with Peter Wordala, Chad Ronchi, and Tim Antonelli about the current state of insurance asset management. And Tim, how is liquidity risk management evolving and changing through current market conditions? Yeah, so John, it's an incredibly hot topic right now, as uh, as you'd imagine, and um, the amount of requests that we're getting for stress testing and scenario analysis on our clients' portfolios as it relates to liquidity has really been um, unprecedented in terms of the levels of engagement that we're getting here. And, and we're looking at it a couple of different ways. So we're looking at it first and foremost from, you know, if, if a company was to have a immediate cash need or an expense need, what would their current portfolio be in a fire sale environment, both in terms of the amount of days it would require to turn over the assets, but also the additional cost that they'd pay. And so that's an important baseline to have, but then we're also supplementing that with point in time historical shocks. So we're able to look back to the great financial crisis, take the liquidity conditions that applied to those same assets and those asset types back then and apply them in today's trading universe. And so it gives some really good indications to our insurance clients about what their exposures are as they exist today. Um, I'd say clients are also paying more attention than ever on off balance sheet sources of liquidity. So whether that includes growing or initiating an FHLB borrowing program or making sure you have ample access to letters of credit, 
they're leaving no stone unturned in terms of off-balance sheet options as well. And I'd also think it's a really critical point right now because, you know, forget the risk aspect of liquidity. You know, they need liquidity right now to be able to put cash to work at these extremely high and attractive all-in yields in the investment grade space. So how are you able to generate that cash? And again, off-balance sheet sources are one. Um, but how are you able to generate this cash by maybe turning over some of your existing portfolio where you're not realizing substantial losses because the positions are in unrealized losses due to interest rate moves? And then the other consideration that factors in all this is the, the last five to 10 years, as we discussed earlier, the flow into alternatives, into liquids. Um, we're seeing a lot more pressure on the public part of the asset classes and trying to really understand the liquidity picture there in a, in a bit more granularity. And, and finally, you know, I'd be remiss not to say that we are seeing some larger insurers who have substantial allocations to private assets starting to explore sales in the secondary market just to get some more liquidity back on their balance sheet as part of it, but also due to overall balancing of their SAA. So liquidity, uh, we're expecting that to be a main focus for the rest of 2023. Yeah. And Tim, you mentioned derivatives and, and some of that. And I think that's often a forgotten aspect of, of liquidity. Um, and you know, you're using that to hedge against movements. Um, but the volatility that's here in the market can create kind of large collateral calls and it, it can be very volatile and, and move around pretty significantly. So a lot of people th throw derivatives on there as a risk management tool, protect your downside risk, but making sure that that's well understood and that you have cash available to to be able to to pony up for the, the collateral requirements as those come up is a key. Yeah, I mean, what we just saw happen in the UK, I think, is a really great example of that, right? Absolutely. Just to briefly add to Tim's point about identifying uh, possible sale candidates for, for reinvestment in, in what's now a very, very attractive market rates. Um, one thing that we've uh, we found made a great opportunity was uh, I mean, floating rate exposure was was a very nice buffer to have in portfolios in 2022. And one of the most common sources of that for insurers is going to be through CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. Uh, we have a number of clients that are below 100 million in assets, and that's a sector that's primarily 144A and isn't eligible to be held. But um, thanks to all the great work that's happening, developing new uh, bond ETFs and new strategies, that actually became a uh, an, an investable asset class quite recently for for non-QIB investors. And so we're able to put on some floating rate exposure through 2022. And then, you know, while rates are certainly likely to be volatile, um, now has been a a more reasonable time to uh, to sell some of those exposures and, and reinvest at, at the 4 and 5% yields available today. Chad, what are the challenges that insurers are facing as a result of the sudden high interest rate environment? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I started by saying the low interest rates were a big issue for the market, right? And, and the, the length of that looking for yield. Um, insurance companies do a lot of stress testing, uh, testing interest rate paths. And if you ask most, uh, most of them, the the sort of nightmare scenario, if you will, is a rapid rise in interest rates. And that, that's exactly what we've seen. Um, so because of the, the the pressure that puts on a general account, um, the, the duration of those portfolios are longer, especially for the life insurers, and the portfolio isn't turning over quite as much. Um, but as participants are looking at their crediting rate, it's not keeping up with the market. So there's there's a higher uh, chance that they would pull their money out and, and go chase, chase the higher yield. Um, and then obviously in that point with rates up, 
the general account um, being, you know, potentially in a position where you need to take losses, that's a direct hit to capital. So that that's really the the challenge of the the rapid increase. Uh, obviously, the flip side of that is new money coming in. Um, you know, as as Peter just mentioned, you really get to put that at work at rates that you've been waiting for and hoping for. And pricing new products in this environment is is a tremendous um, you know a tremendous positive for the industry. But th- those high rates do definitely create some challenges. And this is where your asset liability management strategy, your ALM strategy, really comes um, comes into focus and making sure that you have those strategies in place for your liabilities. And it's not all liabilities in the insurance um, in insurance environment, fortunately, but for those liabilities where there maybe isn't the, the, the sort of controls in place or the product mechanics in place, whether it's a surrender charge or other uh, adjustments to um, disincentivize some of that movement. Um, now, the good news is, as I said, a lot of insurance products are there for the insurance benefit of it, so they don't necessarily have the same impact, um, but it is something that's there. Now, the property casualty side, higher interest rate environment is is welcome. Um, so shorter term investment portfolios that have cash available that are turning over into this environment, um, the higher rates are, are just, just great. And they can help offset some of the challenges um, that they're seeing from inflation on, on the on the loss ratio side. Peter, the last few years have seen two major equity drawdowns, and 2022 featured the largest decline in fixed income in many years. How should insurers think about identifying the right level of exposure to different kinds of market risks? Right. So I started touching on this before, but I think the the approach here really has to begin with psychology. Uh, we don't we don't pretend to be able to perfectly predict when markets are about to go full risk off mode. And honestly, I would be cautious of anyone who claims that they can. Um, I mean, any asset is going to have periods of relative volatility and underperformance. And it's important to acknowledge that upfront and be both mentally and strategically prepared for the fact that drawdowns are going to come sooner or later. And that might seem obvious, but it was actually easy to forget that during this long period of the 2010s when markets seemed more or less uh, permanently benign. Uh, I mean, I can make a simple analogy that an insurer would never recommend that a customer wait to buy car insurance until they actually thought they were about to crash their car. So practically speaking, uh, the asset allocation process needs to begin with defining uh, risk buckets and and risk limits. And these should be defined uh, based around using stress testing, uh, an approach that will expect drawdowns like the ones that we've seen to eventually occur and it's going to set exposures at levels where these types of drawdowns can be weathered comfortably and and they're seen as you know something that was anticipated and then that will allow for full participation in a subsequent uh, market recovery um, additionally stress testing like this it needs to be historically informed it needs to reflect the fact that different kinds of market stress can cause correlations to suddenly change uh, certainly in 2020 while equity in early 2020 while equities were selling off um, ig bonds actually held up pretty well as they frequently have in the past. But then last year, uh, both of these these assets sold off simultaneously. So there's uh, there's more than one kind of market stress that can manifest. Uh, but if there's any benefit to the, the market shocks from COVID and from the inflation cycle, it's that they've really helped reacquaint a, a new generation of investors with the actual experience of two-way price discovery, again, after that, that long uh, benign experience in the 2010s. But I guess recapping my point in a nutshell, it's important to build risk exposures around the expectation that stress cases are going to eventually occur 
And then when they come, and this is the, the real point here, you can use those moments as buying opportunities instead of needing to make hard choices about surplus preservation at exactly the wrong time. And, and I would add on top of that, you know, one thing that we think about when we're assessing risk is the idea of a factor footprint. And so what we saw in recent history, just using the equity markets and their factors as an example, was style drift for a lot of managers that had claimed to be value who actually started to drift growth in the time that growth was crushing value from a performance perspective. And so, you know, we like to break down our clients' portfolios, not just the assets that we manage on their behalf, but also looking across on an anonymous basis, all of their managers and saying, okay, manager X is heavy value. Manager Y is growth value. Manager Z is, is strict growth. And we're able to go through and identify gaps, not just using the nine you know, box style uh, factors, but more factors than that. And we're able to identify gaps that they can think about market shocks in, in relation to. And they can also even consider designing a completion portfolio to either hedge some of the tail risk that exists for some of the factor overweights or to round out exposure to a given factor that maybe co uh, aligns with their underwriting profile as well. So I think, you you know, to uh, Peter's point, you want to consider a variety of risk types and risk buckets. Don't just limit yourself to traditional ones like volatility and standard deviation. Thanks, Tim. When we return, we'll be looking at investment classes that insurers should and should not be considering under current market conditions. I'm John Weber, and this is AM Best TV. Insurance companies are facing significant challenges in portfolio allocations. Conning can help insurers examine investment risk and offer insights on strategies to help them manage portfolios in this environment. Contact Conning to learn more. We're back and we're speaking with Chad Ranchi, Tim Antonelli, and Peter Wordle about the current state of insurance asset management. And Peter, are there any assets outside the major examples of IG and high yield bonds and equity that you believe insurers should be looking at today? Well, definitely not cryptocurrencies, John. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, I say that ironically, but it's a nice reminder to uh, be wary of the new, new thing. Uh, we would certainly agree with Warren Buffett that uh, even if something is going up 100% every year, if you can't clearly articulate why it's a better economic mousetrap than other available assets, you should probably steer clear. But uh, that said, the asset I would recommend, uh, uh, Tim has already uh, previewed for us, and that is uh, one we've been a big fan of for many years, which is convertible bonds. Um, these just make all the sense in the world for insurers. and. Uh, we've been advocating them for a long time, but I, I was just checking the other day and I saw that uh, only about 8% of insurance companies have any, uh, any exposure to them as of year end. So there's still a huge opportunity there for the industry. Uh, these are simply put, these are corporate bonds that can be converted into the issuer's equity. And this is, it's a really a hybrid structure that offers equity like upside potential, but relatively limited downside because they do have scheduled repayment of principal. Uh, basically, it gets you most of the return potential of equity, except it, it is a Schedule D Part 1 bond. It has bond RBC treatment. Uh, if it is IG, and, and many of them are, then it's not even going to be marked to market. So it's going to have a significantly reduced uh, surplus volatility profile. Uh, they're typically publicly traded and liquid. And it's, it's a well-established asset class. It's been through multiple economic cycles now and, and has really 
proven its worth. There's really not too many assets that, that manage to overlap that many nice features on the Venn diagram. Um, I do think some insurers who maybe took a look at them a few years ago were, were less than impressed because they weren't keeping up with equity in an environment where equity was basically just going up 10 or 20% every year. Um, I would encourage any companies in that position to, to seriously think about looking again. Um, convertibles really put their best foot forward in more volatile environments like we see today, where fundamentally they can capture a, a large chunk of equity upside, but thanks to their, their bond features, they do have less participation on the downside. So that is where I think insurers should be looking now if they don't already own any convertibles. And, and I would just throw out there that you know, it's not necessarily an asset, individual asset class per se, but the idea of hiring a manager to look across multiple asset classes and again, have the ability to be tactical and opportunistic in times of market dislocation, manage the entire solution, if you will, with an eye on return on capital or different you know, rating agency risk capital, uh, BCAR, for instance, or even you know, factoring in ESG considerations and being able to manage the, the holistic solution with a broad opportunity set. So you basically have a living, breathing SAA where, you know, we know that a lot of insurers for tax reasons can't be overly tactical. So when you do make shifts, it will be on the margin and you have to factor in things like tax implications and realize gain losses. But allowing the manager the expertise to evaluate a broader set of asset classes in a time of market dislocation and volatility, I think, is critical and, and more insurers should start to consider that. Tim, going a little deeper into that, are there asset classes that are pretty much untouchable, at least for right now? Well, you know, it's nearly impossible to label an asset class as totally untouchable because as you know, each individual insurer's willingness and ability to take on risk can vary substantially, as you know. Uh, so instead, I like to think about it relative to where we are in the cycle today, are insurance asset owners being compensated enough for the implied risk of that asset class? And, you know, Peter had a, a comment moments ago about crypto. And I think that is an example where, you know, it's been a bright spot on a year to date basis uh, for a lot of reasons that even experts in the field are having a hard time articulating, to Peter's point. Uh, but the path of returns and the suggested volatility and the realized volatility that we've seen in the asset class over time, not to mention the difficulties around accounting treatment and capital charges, can make that a very challenging asset class. Uh, the other thing that I would just be cautious about, it, again, at this point in the cycle, is going too far down in quality, and whether that's in the securitized space or the credit space. You know, I think we, we have a quality bias, an up in quality bias, rather, um, just because you're at those yield levels and with the looming risks of a recession. And again, what you're being compensated in the IG space, I don't think it's the right time to be reaching for yield in those spaces of the market. Chad, completely different topic. Are insurers more likely to be considering third-party asset management firms as a result of recent market turmoil? Yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot more companies, and Tim hit on a lot of the, the potential advantages there. Um, but a lot more companies, especially in the smaller and mid-sized firms, which on the life insurance side still is, is sizable balance sheets, still you know hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Um, and, and really, there, there's a couple of drivers of that. I'd say one of them is access to expertise for more of the specialized asset classes. So some of those looking for a manager that may specialize in one of the non-traditional assets we talked about earlier um, and taking a sleeve of their portfolio, moving that to an asset manager with sort of that, that proven track record or expertise in that space. Um, I think the other thing is is just more of an operating model shift for some organizations where they've just said, you know, our core competency is more on the liability side, more on the underwriting side, generating those products. It's not going to be on the investment side, whether for talent reasons, whether for efficiency reasons, let's go um, get an outside third-party asset manager. Um, and I think Tim brought up a couple of good points, right? Really being able to look across there, having the benchmarks, having, you know, other other data points from other insurers in the market. Um, are certainly some of the things that are are benefits of doing that. Um, you know, insurers do need to be very careful to to set up those clear investment guidelines. Um, right, the the assets are really there to support the liability, so making sure that asset liability management strategy is well understood by all of those parties, strong governance and oversight um, over the third parties to make sure that when they see opportunity, there's a discussion that goes on. Uh, obviously, you want to give a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of of um, a rope to to uh, the the third parties, but make sure that it's done within the parameters of what you want it to be done, and so you don't end up with exposures um, that may look fine through one lens, but when you're looking at it from that integrated asset liability um, perspective, uh, still work for you and, and still work because you know ultimately even if you're going to a third party asset manager, you're still on the hook to, to the policyholder and from a regulator perspective as well. All right. Thanks, Chad. Now, before we wrap things up, let's go around the panel and ask each of you if you have any sage words of advice for insurance asset managers as we make our way through the second half of 2023. And Peter, why don't we start with you on that? All right. Well, I don't know about having any sage advice, but I, I suppose I do have, uh, call it an, an exhortation. Um, we were in a low interest rate environment for a very long time there. Uh, others have mentioned, you know, the, the tenure being below two and a half percent for a very long time. In, in 2020, the whole yield curve was below one percent. And there was a real question where outperformance was supposed to come from in an environment where there's barely any income left in fixed income. Uh, well, uh, rates are a lot higher now. And it seems like new sectors fall in and out of favor practically every week. Um, I guess you could say we both got what we wanted and that we live in interesting times now. Uh, and now is certainly the time when having a, a disciplined investment process and strong research and trading capabilities should be producing value for clients. So we as managers need to make sure that we're making the most of the opportunities we see because who knows when the Fed is going to pivot and we'll all be back to buying 10-year single-A corporates at uh, two and a quarter book yields again for who knows how long. Thanks, Peter. Chad Ronchi, what are your words of advice? I was going to say sage words is a, is a high bar to get over, so we'll, we'll see if we can do that. Um, I, I think both Peter and Tim touched on the importance of understanding what's in your portfolio, right? And, and really understand the vulnerabilities that are there, regular stress testing and analysis, I mean, I think Tim even brought up the good point, looking beyond the traditional measures, returns, standard deviation, duration, and really doing stress testing with the assets and liabilities, understanding where the risks are, but also what opportunities you may have. Um, and then just stay up to date with sort of the, the latest market trends. 
um, the last several years have made it very clear that they're, they're big shifts as you as you let off the, the session here, John, in, in terms of the asset management um, and the categories and just how people are, are approaching it. And if you're not staying abreast of those, you could drift further behind and it could really end up impacting your, your competitive, uh, the competitiveness of your products. And obviously, therefore, the sales that you have and the, the sort of uh, the performance of the business. Thanks, Chad. Tim Antonelli, you're getting the last word today. What are your words of advice? So for my sage advice, it's really four key points. So the first is simply forget what you did the last 10 years, because the next 10 are going to look and feel extremely different, as my fellow panelists have pointed out. The second is be opportunistic when you can. So all of this volatility is not necessarily a bad thing. And I strongly recommend insurers to put in place different entry points ahead of time where you know that you would get into the market because of such a stretched valuation. So come up with a spread in the high yield market where you know you'd want to increase your exposure either on, from a tactical trade perspective or initiate a separate account. Do all the legwork ahead of time. Go through all the governance process ahead of time and say, if we hit 650 or 700 on the spreads, we're getting in that market. Because a lot of folks who didn't have a streamlined governance missed market shocks like in March of 2020 with that massive sell-off that snapped right back once the Fed backstopped uh, the industries for COVID. The third piece is reconsidering your strategic asset allocation on a much more regular basis. So what had been in every three to five year cadence feels like in every other year now, maybe it goes to an annual exercise for insurance companies. And the biggest reason is, you know, long term, you know, SAA, CMA assumptions you know, may not vary considerably or shouldn't, but intermediate period, five, 10 year increments have changed substantially and continue to evolve. And so when new asset classes are entering the universe for insurers, I think you really want to reassess your SAA more frequently. And then the last thing is embrace the benefits that can come from diversification across asset classes and asset types. In times of market dislocation and volatility, having diversification across multiple asset classes is a great way to manage that. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, panelists, one and all, for an outstanding presentation on Insurance Asset Class Update. For this AM Best TV special presentation, I'm John Weber. Looking to get the full attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms that will do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by calling AM Best Advertising Sales at 908-439-2200, extension 5399, and have a great day.